there are few decades in film history that have been as scrutinized as the 1980s. But to really understand the decade and its movies, it's going to take a couple someones who were there for it the first time around. Drew McQueenie and Scott Weinberg are ready to review every major film of the decade one month at a time. They'll look at what worked then, what endures now, and how it felt to be there when it all went down. Turn back the calendar with us. It's the 80s all over. What I'm describing now is a plan and a hope for the long term. The march of freedom and democracy which will leave Marxism-Leninism on the ash heap of history as it has left other tyrannies which stifle the freedom and muzzle the self-expression of the people. President Reagan met with Pope John Paul II and Queen Elizabeth in Vatican City, Rome, just one day before delivering his ash heap of history speech to British Parliament. The Lakers beat the Sixers four games to two in the 36th NBA championships. The Equal Rights Amendment was defeated, but the Voter Rights Act of 1965 was extended by a vote of 85 to 8. And finally, John Hinckley was found not guilty of his attempted assassination of Ronald Reagan by reason of insanity. And that's not all that was crazy about June of 1982. Hi, everybody. I'm Drew McQueenie, and welcome to the latest episode of 80s All Over. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Scott Weinberg. Hi, everybody. I'm Scott Weinberg. And as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Drew McQueenie, who just spoke. So... That whole intro was kind of pointless. <laughs> Before we get started, this is a huge episode. This is one that um, I think over and over people have said to us that when they started listening to the show or when they got excited about the show, this is one of the episodes that they were waiting for. And we've certainly been the same way. But June 82 isn't exactly what I thought it was. And that's kind of exciting. A lot of people could point to May of 1981 as are maybe the first of the summer blockbuster uh, months in a way because it had Raiders of the Lost Ark and several other big hits. But I think in many ways, June 1982 is the is the watershed month. Drew. And I think this is where you're going to see a lot of the decade start to snap into focus. And then a lot of what happens for the rest of the decade is a reaction to this month. Doing the research for the show is exhausting and fun and one of the reasons that we love doing it, but uh, it does take a lot, and Patreon is a chance for you to help financially support the creation of the show. We are a completely independent program. We don't have any advertising getting in the way of the show. Right now, you are the ones that are underwriting this five-year project, and we want to thank you for that. Please visit us at patreon.com slash 80sallover. You can also visit us at 80sallover.com backslash the hyphen 80s hyphen all hyphen over hyphen store or just go to 80sallover.com and follow it to the store uh, where you can buy the movies that you hear us talk about here directly from Amazon and they'll kick a little something back to help keep the lights on. So spread the word. If you haven't uh, joined yet, you will get access to tons of good well, maybe not tons, Drew. I don't want to lie. Is it technically tons if it's an audio file? They don't weigh anything. But there's a lot of audio content. And for every week we don't have a regular episode, there is something up on the Patreon site. Also, remember to rate and review us on iTunes and spread the word that way. It helps more than you guys understand. And with that, let's dig in because we have 9,000 things to talk about. Can you even fathom that a month this gigantic would open with the universal international classic with Mel Gibson, Attack Force Zed? 
Earl Gibson leads a handful of heroes against the might of the Japanese army on a mission that can only succeed with men prepared to die. The spectacular guts and glory saga of a suicide squad blasting their way to hell and back with Mel Gibson in Attack Force Z. Imagine you're sitting on this early Mel Gibson film that hasn't had an American release date yet, and then The Road Warrior comes out. How happy are you? I love that this is one of the few times you could see Mel Gibson and Sam Neill on screen together, and uh, I think it's a pretty cool setup for a movie. This special forces team that I didn't know about that worked directly under Winston Churchill and that answered to the Allies during World War II. I think it's a a solid, interesting war film about a group of guys that you would never, ever hear about. This movie's terrible. This movie's bad. It's basically a Guns of Navarro knockoff, and if Gallipoli was surprisingly insightful, then Attack Force Z is a very generic and basic uh, war movie. Man, it's just so conventional and stock. I didn't. I, I never had much fun with this one. When I think of war movies before war movies started getting serious about the effects of war and the larger context of it, this is what war movies were. They were just mission movies. And I do like that about this. I do like the fact that it's a group of guys that I'd never heard of before. And I like that the missions are a little lower tech. I kind of dig anytime you're in World War II and you're watching guys use canoes to fight the enemy. Uh, there's something kind of cool about that. It's not great, but it's also not offensive. I, and if you're interested in seeing these guys at that point, because this was 1978, 79 when they shot it, they're both really young and it is clearly right before anybody figured out what Mel Gibson really was. Right, and I think that if it was not for the presence of Mel Gibson and Sam Neill, this film would be so obscure and forgotten as to not even be mentioned on this show. And now we move from a obscure Australian war film to a relatively obscure and pretty rotten Italian horror film called Contamination, a.k.a. Alien Contamination. in the 80s, you, you definitely came across Italian splatter films, giallo, all kinds of colorful stuff. And if you were like me, you didn't know which was good and which was bad. I didn't know the difference between Argento and, and Luigi Cosi, who directed this film. But now that I'm older, you could tell which knockoffs were just perfunctory like business decisions. And this is a bizarrely dull alien ripoff that doesn't really go into outer space. Luigi Cozzi is, he was very much a ripoff artist. Um, after Star Wars, he did Star Crash, which is one of the better known of these Star Wars ripoffs. And it's terrible. Like, he understood how broken that industry was. There was an interview that he gave in Cine Fantastic where he was talking about the fact that, you know, um, the only way you can get funding in Italy is what film is your film like? And his quote was, we only ever make Zombie 2, not Zombie 1. I'm actually shocked that this film was not sued fucking shitless by 20th Century Fox because it all hinges on the eggs from Alien. They look exactly like it. They're alien spores that basically like make people explode to some degree, but that it's not nearly as fun as it sounds. There's so much dead air. Astronauts went into space. They came back. One of them wants to stop this. The other one seems like he doesn't care. I wonder why that might be. You can make any movie, and if that's your premise, people are going to be interested. 
then you watch it and you're like, you lied. You lied to me. That's not what this movie's about at all. This is about a bunch of glorified extras running around with splatter effects all over their face. It's terrible. The gore is rarely interesting. We uh, we like to include these things just for completion's sake, and so we don't get, you know, complaints. And they are. It's still a legitimate B, C, D-level movie, whatever. Apologies to Contamination fans out there, but even for people with a, a high threshold for shit, this one's really bad. Then we move on, Drew. Ken Wall. Klaus Kinski. Policeman! Tangerine Dream. What is it? The Soldier. The Soldier. You don't assign him. You unleash him. The Soldier, rated R. This was on HBO constantly. I had no interest, couldn't have cared less. I watched it last week and laughed my ass off. Not a comedy. Out of its mind. Yeah, uh, Glickenhouse, our listeners will, of course, recognize the name from The Exterminator. And uh, he'd be back in 85 with The Protector and in 88 with Shakedown. And he's basically a very perfunctory action director. This turn goes from a, like, a spy thriller to a really bizarre political tract propaganda piece. And when it gets very heated about Israel and the KGB and the CIA, it's weirdly specific in what it's upset about. And I'm not sure I followed. I'm not sure I totally get what the movie's got up its ass. There's 400 players and Ken Wall is the guy, the CIA guy who's sort of wrangling all of this and trying to figure out what's going on. And I'm sorry, but if you're trying to unravel an elaborate political scheme ken wall is not the guy that i send in on the case N not to be unkind ken wall's a good character actor but not joe super spy i don't uh, i don't buy it i mean the character should be more along the lines of like a jack ryan a guy who is a as smart as he is physically capable and that is not the way it's presented in the film and i think if you're writing this kind of stuff you've got to be really adept you have to you have to not only know what you're writing about but you have to know how to present it to an audience in a way that the audience feels like it's all very clean and clear why does this cold war movie have ninjas well, because they were a very important part of the Cold War. I don't know if you remember <laughs> the 80s very well, Scott, but... I, oh, I remember the big ninja uh, insurgency of Siberia, 1982. I do remember yeah, that. Yeah, you remember Oliver North when he had to testify about the ninjas that they financed? And mm, mm -mm. I'll bet there's a lot of people who saw this with their dad. <laughs> this, this is that kind of movie that... I saw with my dad, like th this is what he would go to the video store and come home with. And there was always one movie on the stack that was like this. That was his code name, the soldier. You don't assign him. You unleash him. Uh, so, yeah, we're going to move now from obscure action to what I would call almost an anti-action film. And that is part of its appeal. That is what makes it enduringly cool. And this was the first major U.S. release of a movie that was more well known as a title than as an actual film. I didn't get to see it in 1982, but I I am more than familiar now with Bob the Gambler. Back it up, back it up. Say the, say the French title. Bob le Flambeur. Oh, God, your people are going to pillory us for that. This is a, a fantastic 1956 French film that I did not see until many, many years later, but it did get a reissue in 1982. Bob le Flambeur was remade in 2002 by Neil Jordan as The Good Thief, which is not a bad rendition, I think, but this is much better. Uh, it is clearly the inspiration for heist flicks uh, like Ocean's Eleven. It is dark, clever. It is entirely engaging, fascinating. 
It's such a fantastic character piece. I love that Bob is not really a criminal at the beginning of this film. He's more like the glue in the criminal world where he knows everybody and he's connected everybody some way. Like he loaned this guy money or he mentored this guy a little bit or he saved this guy's life at one point. He went to prison. He was a criminal and he's he kind of had his history, but he's been out of it for a long time. And I love that this is as much about post-war Paris as is about crime. It's about the way the past is always better than the present. The movie makes the argument that even gangsters get nostalgia. When Bob plans this heist, you can see how many people have borrowed from this because this is one of those moments where somebody does something for the first time. And it must have been in 1956 to sit in a theater and see the sequence where they're planning the heist and they show you how Bob pictures the plan and they go through his version of it in his head. That was crazy and the idea of presenting it that way was crazy and now that's how heist films almost always like do things and i love melville in general lay samurai is the one that i kind of like fell in love with first but he works in this crazy beat poetry film language and his stuff is beautifully economical and it is a paris that feels very lived in and is not the movie Paris. It's I love the dirt on everything and I love that it feels lived in and real. And and I think back to when this film came out and I can't help but imagine that this must have seemed dangerous. This must have seemed edgy. I'm rooting for the villain. I'm pulling for the bad guys. And in you know nowadays anti-heroes and, and lovable scoundrels are everywhere. But in French film in 1956, like this, it must have seemed very subversive. Well, not only that, but he was brilliant about the way he cast. So there's people in this movie that are actual criminals from the Paris Underground that he used because he, he wanted it to be very natural. And he loved to use improvisation and he filmed with whatever he could get his hands on. And they would shoot two or three days at a time and then kind of back off and, and figure out when they could shoot again. And so you needed people who could drop in and out of character. So the best solution, hiring actual criminals really pays off in that this film feels as authentic as it does. His films got more and more confident as they went. And certainly when you look at later era films of his, he's a master at what he does. But from the very beginning, even when he had no money and he was begging for production days, there is such a calm, confident sense of style. And when you think about how frantic it must have been to shoot, that's the most amazing part to me, that at no point did you ever see this movie break a sweat. Uh, so there we got Australia covered. We got Italy covered, thanks for nothing. And we got uh, France covered for uh, Bob the Gambler. I would love to know how listeners reacted to Chan is Missing when it dropped in 1982. Yeah, now this is the debut feature from Wayne Wang. Uh, and he would go on to direct lots of stuff. Uh, Blue in the Face, Smoke. Oh, Smoke. Smoke is great. Joy Luck Club. This is his breakthrough, and it's like a $20,000 film. I got to say, I love this movie. This is a great movie I had heard of as a kid, had never seen it, saw it, I don't know, a month ago. It's fantastic. It's And it's super gentle. One of the things I love about Wayne Wang, one of the reasons Smoke is so good, is he's he's a perfect match for Paul Oster, the writer, whose language is very gentle, and, and there's very little, even in big confrontational moments, there's very little sharpness. This movie is so super low key about the joke it's playing, and it's a shaggy dog joke. Like the whole thing is there's these two cab drivers looking for a guy named Chan who owes them a little bit of money and is missing. And that's it. So you're talking about late 70s, early 80s, San Francisco, Chinatown. And it is an excuse for Wayne Wang to introduce you to everybody. So you get this whole portrait of what the Chinese American community was like and and how complex a community that was 
what the tensions were, what the attitudes were, how the differences were in age and in background. And it's as if you would say, oh, I want to make a film that shows average Americans that not all Chinese people are similar in, in their attitudes and perspectives. And a lot of people would say, well, well, obviously, do you need a film to show that? Uh, yeah, you do. <laughs> I mean, all you need to do is look across the world today and see how close-minded people are to other cultures. I even think this this movie, if you re-release this now in theaters, it would still feel somewhat groundbreaking because it takes the time to introduce you to every single person they encounter. And they sit down with them and they let them talk and tell their stories. And you get to see the way the Chinese community is divided over commercialization and how they're portrayed and, and what they do. It, you know, like a Chinese parade, a Chinese dragon parade seems like a pretty benign thing to most of us at this point. But it's loaded with significance and with cultural import, and it means something to people. And there are arguments about what that even is. And like, I love how deep this movie goes into a community and how Wayne Wang never seems to impose one view as this is who you should be listening to. The idea is just to let you get lost in it's it. It's like and our town. The- you could name a thousand films that are like this, but they're all white actors. You can't name many films like this where it's we're going to have like an all in one night kind of a, a light comedy uh, and, and it's going to introduce you to all these very colorful, interesting characters. Oh, but by the way, they're all Chinese Americans. My entire life as a film fan never really thought much about representation. And now the older I get, the more I realize that films like this really matter. They're not just good and important and worth seeing, but they really matter to people. And, uh, you know, I, I highly recommend. The, the idea that he takes this the Charlie Chan premise, they they because we talked about Charlie Chan and the Curse of the Dragon Queen and, and how offensive it is. It's really thuddingly offensive and it's a dumb movie on top of it. But the idea that Chan is who they're looking for, that somebody named Chan is missing and that these two guys who are the last people you would ever expect to be the detectives in any story. But that's what makes them really wonderful is both of them are so different and bring such a particular perspective to it. And I love that even by the end of the film. Chan is irrelevant. Yeah, the the journey is more interesting than the destination. Trust us, everybody. Chan is missing 80 minutes long. It's not a wasted frame in the movie. You will definitely see why Mr. Wang went on to have a very impressive career. And uh, I am very pleased that, that the show, I don't think I'd ever have watched this movie if we weren't doing this podcast. So thank you. So from there, we move on to something I had seen as a kid, and it's pretty stupid. <laughs> Right? I could have been watching Chan is Missing. And instead you were watching Humongous. Six people stranded, cornered, hunted. Because here on Dog Island, something evil has been growing for 30 years. Humongous. It's loose. It's angry. It's getting hungry. Humongous. God help us. <laughs> this starts with the ugliest rape I have ever seen in a movie. No, I mean, is it worse than The Beast Within? I think it might be because this goes on forever, man. This is super Canadian. The rapist, when he grabs the girl, says, I've had just a boot all I can take from you, eh? 
it has the stink of real crazy on it too. It's it, there is something so bananas about the entire concept, like the backstory that it took to even get to the setup. Right. The main premise is a bunch of idiots on a boat land on a small Canadian island where there is uh, legends of horrible malfeasance decades earlier. The rape that opens the movie is the setup for all that malfeasance. And then it goes into this opening title sequence that I had to play back like three times. It is crazy. And it's the entire history between the rape and the stupid teenagers showing up. No, it's my favorite part of the movie. It, it's almost like the bits in Friday the 13th where you like piece together <laughs> oh, what happened in the God. intervening years. It's like, now that's creepy. But it's so crazy. Story about a bunch of idiots landing on the island and getting slowly massacred. Not that interesting, but like those like newspaper backstories. My Bloody Valentine does it too, where they show the newspapers about what happened between now and then. And this is done through like oil paintings and it's and they're all presented as very serene, but there's the implications of horrible dog murder and (laughs) it is crazy the movie itself feels like it's translated and dubbed badly even though it's an english language film like everybody in the film feels like they were not speaking english when it was shot that was written in canadian translated to english and then translated back to canadian again what a bunch of shitty kids too i was hoping they would all die at once so we could just go home and it is as relentlessly horny as porky's in that same gross leering way the canadians just not get sex because there is a weird leering nastiness that that is particularly this and porky's Nice direct lift from Friday the 13th part two towards the end of this film. Like they play the exact same beat, but then they keep going. And I have to say, Scott, the second to last death in this movie, if you don't count the monster, really offends me because there's this one girl who is kind of the side character, the little girl with the glasses who manages to stay alive for the entire film. Finally, the main girl, the hero girl is being chased by the monster, comes running up this path. This girl pops out and goes, oh, thank God you're back. I've been looking for you. She runs past her. The monster murders her and keeps running. And it's like, fuck you, hero girl. That was insane. You just, it's bad. And now we move on to something entirely obscure. I can't believe we found it. This is the final film of the Lunatic Check Starrett. It stars Bruce Davison, Bruno Kirby, and Susan George in Kiss My Grits. of his friend, Dolan's gonna attempt one hell of a getaway. This here is Charlie. This is Peaches. This is Baby. This is Flash. And this is Dolan. And together, they may kiss my grits, the down and dirty comedy chase of the year. Drew, why don't you tell people who Jack Starrett is? He He's a real no-joke exploitation lunatic. You actually have probably seen him and would know him visually more than you would know him uh, as a filmmaker for most people. Uh, he's one of the uh, deputies in First Blood, and he dies great in that movie. I actually worked on a remake of a movie of his for a while for 20th Century Fox. I wrote several drafts of Race with the Devil. Chris Moore from Project Greenlight was going to direct it. I really wanted to remake that movie, and I love the potential of it, but we never got to the finish line with it. But he did a lot of biker films. His subgenre of biker films that he was in and that he kind of helped uh, create, it, it was a huge thing in the 60s and 70s uh, and then went away. Like, it's he's one of those guys that I think he existed at the exact moment he could for the career that he had. Dude, he's got 30-some credits as director, and the film we're covering now 
is his final directing credit. And he didn't pass away until 1989. Uh, he did a lot of acting after uh, he stopped directing. But um, of the films he's directed, you've, a lot of Western stuff, a lot of stuff I haven't seen. I like seen. Cleopatra Jones, Race of the Devil. I like a few of them. And The Gravy Train is notable, or The Dion Brothers, depending on how you saw it, is notable mainly because it was ghostwritten by Terrence Malick. What's crazy about Kiss My Grits is that they cast Bruno Kirby and Bruce Davison as good old boys. And I'm sorry, but whatever you think of Bruno Kirby's acting range, Hick was not in his bag. Bruce Davison is the the main guy here. It is a car chase movie, ultimately. It kind of takes its time getting there. But it's one of those that, having tracked it down, I get why it is utterly forgotten. And even with that cast, um, none of them shine. It's not like Bruce Davison or Susan George, Bruno Kirby, like, pop out of the movie and you go, oh, okay, these guys are going to be big later. It's, no. They, they decided a little bit too late that we're going to make our own car race movie, and it just leaked out by 82. Also noteworthy in that a uh, friend of the podcast, Andre Gower, a.k.a. a member of the Monster Squad, is also in this film. Is he really? Yep. Wow, okay. So yeah, this will be your homework assignment. If anybody out there can dig up Kiss My Grits, let us know what you thought of it. Uh, it's it's watchable, but it's pretty dull. I mean, for a chase movie, right? I mean, it's yeah, it's 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 a bummer. It's it's one of those that you you hope there's going to be some kind of like at least sleazy kick or fun to it. Maybe they'll have fun with the the comedy or the car chase stuff. Even among Starrett's filmography, it's kind of a sedate nothing. And there are other films of his that if you really want to track him down and get a taste of what he could do, there's better examples. It is always fun to see Bruce Davison in a young role. Uh, most people, most most younger movie fans would know Bruce Davison as the um, what the senator who melts into glop from in X Men. Uh, he's fun in the movie. He's he's at least like trying. They're I mean they're all trying. It's just not a, it's not an interesting premise. It's there's nothing to it. The movies that are like this that work are the ones where there's some chemistry that happened, and even though the movie is perfunctory, you still get pulled in because of the people. And there's plenty of little exploitation films that are like that. This one just isn't. Uh, we'll touch briefly on, as we've mentioned in previous episodes, uh, Disney would always, uh, would frequently swoop in during busy times of the year and just drop one of their old classics into theaters. And I'm sure that uh, distributors, other competitive distributors who had uh, new films would, would shake their fist in the air and say, darn you, Disney, we spent all our money on this new film and you're going to open a reissue of Bambi. From Walt Disney Pictures, it's been called one of the most heartwarming motion pictures ever made and a true Disney masterpiece. Now it's back in theaters. This is quite an occasion. This is Bambi. Only in theaters, it's the adventure you won't want to miss. Bambi! Quick, Pauline, jump! Walt Disney's classic, Bambi, rated G. I know I saw this re-release. I know I saw it theatrically. That was a big part of my childhood was was going to see these, these re-releases at Disney's. So 82 was the introduction for both of us, like the formal one. Yeah, you know, I'd only known Bambi probably from like clips on the Disney, Wonderful World of Disney show. Or, but, but yeah, this is when I saw it. In full, I think it's obviously one of Disney's true masterpieces. I mean, they have their upper echelon of classics, and then among those classics, there are the best of the best. And I think I'd put this in that top five echelon. Well, yes. I had, and I had the reaction that a lot of people have had generationally with it, which is my dad. I was living in Tennessee at the time. My dad was, you know, a Vietnam vet, and he was a hunter, and he was a gun owner, and I was raised with guns, and I already had my own rifle by this point. So... Bambi changed the way I felt about hunting, and it was not something my dad was real cool about. Did you ever say to your dad, hey, 
did the film ever make you think a little bit more about hunting? Not change your mind, but did the film ever make you think a little bit more closely about about the hunting that you do? I think my dad has a very different way of, of processing things. And for him, hunting was just a fundamental cornerstone of how he was raised. So it never occurred to him. Like I was raised that hunting is unless, you know, unless you're feeding your family, then it's really kind of cruel and pointless to kill animals. And uh, I don't think that people who hunt are bad people, but I am very interested in if somebody who's like rah, rah, pro hunting and they see a piece of art that actually moves them. Do they like compartmentalize? Do they ignore it? Like, what happens? Well, it's interesting that the movie, if you go back and you read reviews of the movie from when it came out in the 40s, there were a lot of critics who dismissed it utterly and considered all of that, all of the hunting subtext, all the stuff with Bambi's mother, all of that distasteful and unnecessary. And like Manny Farber really went to town on it. It was not a wildly well-received movie. Um, I think for a lot of critics, it was a break from the fantasy that marked his earlier work. And they saw it as, well, why did he do this? Why did he have to hammer this point? Uh, like Fantasia, like several of the Disney features, it has had a better post-life than it did initial release. All right. Well, that's Bambi. Endless let. Let's just move on to our biggies. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I can't believe where we get to start. Oh, my God. Whew. All right. Now, this next film is very important to me. Is there anybody out there? The Memories. The madness. The music. The movie. The wall. We don't need no education. I think this is what happens with a lot of movie fans at a certain age is a difficult or a symbolic or a metaphor-laden film hits them, and they come up with a good interpretation in their head. And that kind of positive reinforcement, that kind of getting something out of the process of watching a film, I can't tell you how many times I would sit down with my friends and explain to them what Pink Floyd the Wall was actually about. And they, right over their head, not dummies, they just, they didn't watch films the same way I did. And then my friends would be like, after you'd explain like, oh, it's about a guy who's in a hotel room and his wife left him and he's alienated and alone and he feels guilty because he has all this success and all these fans and people adore him, but he's miserable and he thinks he wants to die, but he's not sure and he doesn't know where he stands in the life. And my friends just said, you get that out of this? I can't even count how many times I've seen this film. And it's a really, really different experience theatrically, one that I, I have anytime I see it. It's playing somewhere. It's amazing in the theater, and it was designed by Alan Parker specifically to be a theatrical event. It works differently there. It's sad to me that Alan Parker dismisses his work here. Because this was made during the MTV era, sometimes he is sensitive to the notion that he made an MTV movie. But I think he has maybe the best musical chops of any living filmmaker right now. He is a natural at it. If a music video has like a god, this movie to me would be the god of music videos. Yes. Yeah, and I think in this case, you know, he he made a musical that brought the thuddingly literal work of Roger Waters to life with the exact same sledgehammer subtlety that the music did. That's fine. Not everything is meant to be subtle. This is musical theater. This is go big or go home. I think the thing that this movie gets best is that the scabrous anger from the original work by Waters and in the work of an entire generation of little boys who grew up in England without fathers because of World War II. Because there was this hole that that war left in every country that fought it, and England in particular had a generation of no fathers. 
there's some really interesting connections that Parker tries to make, and he doesn't do any of it on a one-to-one level, but there's connections between the men on the battlefield and kids at general mission shows and cops outside and violence in trenches. And the way he cuts all of it and shoots it, he gets this sort of dark, malevolent energy of the album correct. And, you know, I always took it as... Uh, this is what my father had to deal with as a youth. And look, this is me. I get to do this. And it's ridiculous that I get to do this when my father had to do that. And just that twisted irony. It's about it's about conformity and depression and sanity. It's about uh, it's about coming out of being miserable. It's not necessarily a movie about like wallowing in misery. It, 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 there there is some degree of of uh, lightness in the film. And if you don't like the music, I mean, I turned on. I definitely became a huge Pink Floyd fan uh, in later years, but. I just love this film, even aside from the music. And I, I don't even think it's their best album for the record. I would like to see a movie version of Pink Floyd's Animals. I, I think there's something a little bit hilarious about the entire thing, which is, you know, in the opening version of In the Flesh, he sings the line, if you want to find out what's behind these cold eyes, you just have to claw your way through the skies. And then he proceeds to, for the next hour and a half, completely in detail spell out what's behind those cold eyes. No clawing necessary. For an introvert, Roger Waters loves writing about himself. There's that scene where he's in the room and the uh, the animation comes to life on the wall and it's the flower that's kind of attacking him. But when you see that in the theater, the wall itself is the canvas of the movie screen. It's remarkable how pink gets reduced to the size of an actual person in the auditorium. So like the effects play the way they should in an in a stadium. And part of that is Parker said that when he went and saw the live show before they started making this movie, he realized very quickly, Oh shit, I can't even remotely compete with this. Cause this is when you're here, the sensory overload of watching them build this wall and watching them tear it down and everything that's going on and the smells and the sounds, I'm never getting this on a movie screen. So he really had to figure out ways to do it. And I think what he benefits from is the small stuff. There is a scene in this movie. Young pink is on a playground and his mother kind of leaves him on the playground and he's watching all the families that actually still have fathers. There's this whole scene that plays out where he just this one guy is nice enough to put him on a carousel. And because of that, right, he tries to grab his hand, right? He's trying to hold his hand as he walks away. It's the saddest thing I think I've ever seen in a movie. It breaks my heart. There was a real um, contention between Alan Parker and Roger Waters on this. And so there's stuff like in the scene in the class where the teacher finds Pink writing poetry and he reads it out loud and it's money from Dark Side of the Moon. That was a joke that Parker put in and Roger Waters hated and felt insulted by. And that cracks me up that Waters is so vulnerable still and so touchy that he would have Alan Parker make this two hour ode to this work of his and still manage to get hurt because of the way he layers in a private joke. Roger Waters should be grateful every day to Alan Parker every day. Two pieces of casting that I think really work. Bob Geldof was an inspired choice. Roger Waters recognized early on. I can't act. So don't put me in the movie. And then they had somebody else who is a lead singer from another band come in and play him. That's kind of weird as a piece of casting. But it really pays off because Geldof ends up being very, very good. in Yeah, creepy in a good way. Creepy. And I think Jenny Wright, anytime she shows up, a film is instantly 15 percent more interesting. And to me, she remains the most elusive and haunting of all the 80s girls because she disappeared after the 80s. And there is something about her that feels like she existed for 11 minutes. She's always 
impossible to take your eyes off of. She's so interesting. There's a great piece online. If you want to read Alan Parker talk about the making of this, he does this this amazing talk about it. And it's all was made as he was shooting and cutting Shoot the Moon. He was prepping this thing and wasn't going to direct it originally. He talks about how he ended up doing that. I think the craziest thing about this movie is the only reason it was made was because MGM looked at the sales of the album and said, when we release the soundtrack album, we will clean up to this day. There is no soundtrack album for this yep, movie. Nor does it need one, frankly. I, I mean, you can get those songs, those missing songs and whatnot. But you're right. There is some interesting stuff in Pink Floyd The Wall. Uh, you know, and, and it's an interesting dichotomy here because you were a Pink Floyd fan here and you recommend the film. Before seeing the film and falling in love with it, I was not a Pink Floyd fan, but I love the movie. And now I am. So uh, it's a firm recommendation. Even if you don't like the band, there's a lot of really interesting shit to be seen in Pink Floyd The Wall. Alan Parker is a genius. We will discuss him more moving forward. Now let's get into... A big topic of discussion in the 1980s. Drew, we are going to get to the bottom, maybe, of who directed Poltergeist. In the darkness of early morning, in a new suburban home, six-year-old Carol Ann will be the first to realize. at your television set the same way again. Poltergeist. It knows what scares you. A Steven Spielberg production rated PG. According to the Directors Guild of America and the Emotion Picture Arts and Sciences, Toby Hooper directed Poltergeist. Steven Spielberg was just getting started as in his career as the Midas Touch executive producer. Throughout the 80s, just about anything with Steven Spielberg's name on it in any capacity was golden. And while I can plainly see that a lot of the stuff in this film, especially in Act 1, reeks of Spielberg and not even remotely reminds one of Toby Hooper, I don't think it's entirely fair to the memory of Toby Hooper to say he didn't direct this film. This conversation in general makes me uncomfortable because we weren't on the set. I can say that John Leonetti, who was the photographer of the film, his brother Matthew Leonetti claims that it was indeed Spielberg who directed uh, the way I've always heard it described from people who worked on and around the film is that Spielberg, this started with he and Stephen King saying, we want to make a haunted house film together. And Stephen King was part of the original bones of Poltergeist when Steven Spielberg was going to write it. And it was just going to be a haunted house movie that they did. King pretty quickly dropped out, but he's the one who introduced the two screenwriters to Spielberg. And so in that way, he kind of started the ball rolling. And then at every point during pre-production, Spielberg was involved in storyboarding. He helped determine how things were going to be done effects-wise. He helped cast the movie. It is shot, it looks like, next door to where they're shooting E.T. Like, it is set in the same neighborhood to the point where I used to get scenes confused from the two of them in my head. It feels like the neighborhood in E.T. is not finished yet. <laughs> and, the, and the neighborhood here is. But you're right. A lot of the domestic stuff is very, very... And that's where I think a lot of the Spielberg claims... Could it not be, Drew, that he was just a very hands-on executive producer and they both directed the film? Could that not I, be the I case? think that's the case. I, I know enough people that have talked about what Toby's contributions were, and Toby was definitely all over this movie. And I think the, the most important thing is there's a disrespect involved in simply sweeping Toby aside. Let's not forget, Toby Hooper made one of the scariest films of all time. And that's what got him this gig. There's a reason Steven Spielberg reached out to him. And this is, I would argue, one of the best studio produced horror films ever made. It is an effective and impressive catalog of childhood fears, all French pressed into this super strong blend of nightmare images. And most impressive of all, it is a genuinely scary and fun horror film where no one dies. 
Fucking try that. And it still works beautifully. I just showed it to Toshi and Alan at the beginning of the summer. And for both of them, it was a big, giant benchmark moment where, oh, my God, this is genuinely as scary as movies uh, get. Craig T. Nelson and Joe Beth Williams fantastically play uh, what seems to be former hippies turned domestic parents where they have a teenage daughter, uh, a young boy, and a little girl. They're in a house, and it turns out to be haunted in very modern fashion. And that's the key. By placing a haunted house very firmly in a contemporary suburban setting, it's kind of removing that that disconnect of, oh, it's a gothic mansion in the middle of the moors. No, it's a haunted house in the middle of a neighborhood you've all driven through or live in. Well, think of what he did. He made TVs scary. A TV by that point was this ubiquitous thing that was in every home. And the idea that it becomes a threatening device that you could lose your children into is not only a smart social comment, but it is a really clever way of making it feel very modern. And I got to say, I think the Freelings are one of my very, very favorite married couples in movies. First of all, the Freelings fuck. I love that Craig T. Nelson is hilarious as a guy who is little by little selling his dreams off. And he's okay with it because he loves his family. I think Joe Beth Williams is, using the historically accurate term, a stone-cold fox. She is such a cool character in this movie. Think of the excitement in that first scene where she and Carol Ann find that water slide thing in the kitchen. Think of how much fun she has all day doing that with her daughter and how, by the end of that day, her daughter is so bored by the whole thing. And she's still flipping out every time. I love that. It has that extra third act. Cameron did it in Aliens, too. There's like an extra annex to the third act, which is, whew, okay, good. Everything is okay now. And we're going to wrap everything up. And rah, no, there's another big monster attack. Love that. You could just talk about the effects and how, how hard Spielberg must have fought to keep some of those effects in and not get an R rating. Because while it's not a very violent horror movie, it does have a couple of really gruesome moments. Oh, it's crazy. And this this pushes the PG about as hard as I think the PG ever got pushed. I love the movie kids. I love the chemistry between all three of them. I like that Robbie is that sort of shaky kid who he doesn't want to be as afraid as he is but he's still pretty afraid of everything. Oh, yeah. Oliver Robbins is great as uh, Robbie Freeling. They're all the, all three kids are great, but, but he really nails that like 10, 12 year old boy who wants to be cocky and, and wants to be a big boy, but is in many ways still just a little kid, but doesn't want to admit it. One of the nicest pieces of writing involving the kids is the fact teenage daughter is old enough to have some agency and say, you know what? Fuck this. My house is haunted. I am gone. And so she is. She splits for a chunk of the movie. And that to me is such a real tiny detail that she would just say, I'm not coming home. Okay. Well, you're old enough that you can do that. And I like that. Uh, We cannot discuss Poltergeist, good Lord, without mentioning the legendary, immortal, amazing Zelda Rubenstein. This house is clean. What a key performance is we need to have somebody come in at the beginning of, say, or middle of Act 2, and we need somebody who is both an authority figure, but yet can also bring some light, some warmth into this story. She shows up and delivers exposition that we need, and more importantly, personality and warmth that the movie desperately, at that moment, really needs an injection of humanity and warmth. And she delivers it. She's great. So good. So good. Technically, I think it is as fine a movie as the 80s produced it's remarkable to me that even now showing it to my kids the fears are just as potent the fears are just as real 
This movie cuts so deep so fast, and whether it's the thing under your bed or the thing in the closet or the tree outside your window or lightning or thunder or... How many kids, I wonder, out there remember the whole uh, how, to, how to tell of lightning is getting farther away or closer? That moment between Nelson and Robbie is just fantastic. Uh, and what's interesting uh, for Spielberg fans is you'll note that he has very, very few uh, writing credits in his career. And this is a film where he has a writing credit. It was a personal film to him that he brought in Toby Hooper to help him get across the finish line. Let's put it this way. I'm sure he wouldn't appreciate it if we spent all of our time talking about how nothing he did in AI was actually his and it was all Kubrick's and nothing came from Spielberg. That's probably how it felt for Hooper. And I know Spielberg never encouraged this shit. And I would imagine probably is as tired of it as other people are. All right. Our next film is a true classic of the decade. I was not a big fan of the source material before I saw this film. And then after I saw the film, I was a junkie for Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. A scientist discovered it. We're talking about universal Armageddon. A madman stole it. I mean to avenge myself upon you, Admiral. An admiral pursued it. And it warped speed in three minutes or we're all dead. They all wanted it. They're on a build-up to detonation. Now, none can escape it. Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, rated PG. My mom came to school to pick me up one day unannounced. And there was no reason she didn't tell me what was going on. She told the school we were going to the doctor. And instead, she took me to lunch. And then we went and we saw Star Trek II on opening day. And it was fucking awesome. I was suspicious of Star Trek to some degree because I liked the original series on TV. And I, I kind of thought of it as hand in hand with Twilight Zone. Like they were social issue shows couched in genre. Star Wars was my real love. I was uh, Our generation thought Star Wars was fun and Star Trek was a little starchy and dry. That's what we thought. And it didn't help that the first Star Trek film was way starchy and dry. I like it now. As a kid, it bored me to tears. As a grown-up, I kind of like the motion picture. My mom was the one that, that really was advocating for Star Trek being awesome. And so I think this was, she wanted to see it. This was a good excuse for her. Oh, I'll take Drew and he wants to see it. I think both of us that day walked out feeling differently about Star Trek, like really excited by the future of Star Trek. And that's what Star Trek 2 gave back to Star Trek fans was the idea that there is a future for this thing that you love. It's so much fun. I don't, it doesn't matter if you never saw Star Trek 1 and if you wouldn't know Kirk from Spock from Uhuru. It doesn't matter. Star Trek 2 is just a great space adventure. You will get to know those characters, but even if you don't know them, it works as a standalone three-act adventure movie. And Drew, you could probably talk on this more than I could. Talk about the importance of bringing in new blood into an established system because Nicholas Meyer is who saved this franchise. Nicholas Meyer and Harv Bennett as a production unit came in and kind of Took this and streamlined it. Look, there's all sorts of stories about what was about to happen. They were going to do a new series with a new cast, and they were going to have some of the old cast back, and they worked on that for a little while. They really didn't know what to do after the motion picture. The fact that they stripped this down and they started making it as a TV movie says everything. It is a film that won its way back onto the big screen. What happened was they, they realized that when you have Kirk, Spock, and Bones, you have the perfect storytelling unit. This movie leans on it in such a way that by the end... I understood Spock, Kirk, and Bones as a dynamic perfectly. You know what's a wonderful thing here that screenwriters should really take note of? By having Ricardo Montalban playing this villain, this is a sequel to an episode. Now your hardcore fans, your people who love Star Trek, go, holy shit, 
That's the villain from the Space Seed episode. I love that. Now you've made the established fans, or at least most of them, happy. But if you don't know that he's already established in a, in a previous episode, it doesn't matter. All of it's in here. All of the motivation you need is in here. And Montalban understood that this was for him a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And not many people ever gave Ricardo Montalban the chance to play this kind of role. And again, you want to talk about representation, about things that could or couldn't happen. For Hollywood not to realize what he was when he was in his prime, when he was younger and beautiful, and he could have played 15 to 20 years of this stuff, it's a real shame. It's a real mistake on their part, because clearly Montalban was a beast. And if you gave him something to do, the guy was on fire. Dude, he is suave. He is Built like a brick shit house. Do you know the Klingon proverb that tells us revenge is a dish that is best served cold? It is very cold in space. Chewing the scenery in the best way. Uh, you know, he's supposed to be over the top as this snarling, hissing villain. Who else are you going to throw against Shatner? Because it's not like you're dealing with a shrinking lily of a uh, actor. You got to you got to go toe to toe with that. He did. And not only did he go toe to toe with it, but he actually makes Shatner better because Shatner now has something to dig into. And it's one of Shatner's best roles, I think. I'll also say that this movie has a very special place in my heart. It is the first time I ever saw a movie make Toshi cry. Ship. Out of danger. Yes. Don't grieve him, Admiral. It is logical. The needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. Or the one. Uh, Toshi's like gateway movie was the J.J. Abrams Star Trek and Speed Racer. That was the year that he kind of fell in love with movies. So Star Trek was important to him. And when they sent the Blu-rays out that year, we went through. This is actually where Film Nerd 2.0 began was writing about him watching the Star Trek movies with me. The only time I saw him cry that hard for a death in a movie in that same era was when Godzilla died in the 1954 film. So that's weird. You're got a weird kid that lets you know where Toshi's heart was, man. He, he couldn't take it when Spock died. And he couldn't take it when Godzilla died. Those movies really matter to him. Like he continues to go back to them. And and actually, Toshi, how much do you love Star Trek? I really like Star Trek. Yeah, I just like Star Trek a lot. Out of the movies, which one do you watch the most now? <sighs> that's hard. Maybe maybe Star Trek 2. Wait, which movies are we all of them or just the original movies? What's your favorite part about Wrath of Khan? Well, I really like watching the space battles and all that. I agree. I think the space battles in that movie are hot. It's the first time they got that they're naval battles, and they really shot them like naval battles in that movie. True. Would you believe me if I told you that Star Trek The Motion Picture actually made a little more money dom domestically than 2 did? I would, because the first one came out with a, a hype campaign that was almost unequaled. I think the biggest thing I'd ever seen before that point, marketing-wise, was Superman. But it was gigantic. They sold the shit out of it. The Star Trek films were remarkably consistent. I'll run through these real quick while you put your kid to bed. Uh, Star Trek, 82 million. Star Trek 2, 79 million. Star Trek 3, 76 million. Star Trek 4, 110 million. People like those whales. And then the weird part, after part four, which was the biggest one by far, Star Trek V, 52. How does that happen? Captain Kirk is climbing a mountain. Why is he climbing a mountain? So, Star Trek II is one of the best science fiction adventure movies I've ever seen. 
I think it is the the beginning of a phenomenal trilogy. I absolutely adore two, three, and four. The fact that I knew nothing about Star Trek and kind of had no interest because, like, I was a Star Wars acolyte, I left Star Trek to a fan of these characters. And that, you can't really give a movie a bigger compliment than I had no interest in these characters, and then Star Trek Two made me a fan. Speaking of fun, uh, there is very little to be found in our next film, and it breaks my heart because I really wanted to love this movie. So, Scott, let's do it. Let's dig in and talk about Hanky Panky. When you're wanted for a murder you didn't commit. Killer. Chased for secrets you didn't steal. I want to know what's going on here. And I want to know right now. And running from people who want to kill you. The worst mistake you can make is to fall in love. Gene Wilder and Gilda Radner. Hanky Panky. A crazy mixed up comedy adventure. Gene Wilder reuniting with Sidney Poitier, who directed Stir Crazy and is now directing Hanky Panky. Gilda Radner, a wonderfully funny woman. This is where they met and fell in love. Gene Wilder is given some funny stuff to do in this movie. Gilda Radner is cast as if she was like Ingrid Bergman or something. She's just completely sincere and stone-faced. There's nothing. They don't give her anything funny to do in this movie. I got to say, I flat out hate this movie. And I'm going to go on record and say, with very few exceptions... I really don't care for Sidney Poitier as a director. It's baffling because it's not funny, and it's my least favorite Gene Wilder performance. It really seems like they're going for Silver Streak again, which is... I don't know who he's playing, though. I don't know what the reality of the world is. I think he's kind of a creep in the movie. Their big introduction, he beats the shit out of her, and that's the joke, is their big introduction. The first time they, they run into each other, he's caught up in this thing where he's being chased for really no discernible reason. And they flail their way through this thing. How do you watch dailies for a film like this and not know that it is laying there dead and there's no laughs and there's no chemistry? It's amazing that they had this love story that played out behind the scenes and then for the next you know, several decades of their life that this connection that Gene, until Gene died, Gene was, was talking about that connection, even though it was so brief. It's absent from this movie there's zero chemistry yeah you often talk um about uh gilda radner unfortunately passed away in 1989 we were, we were robbed of a lot of good stuff her her film career was unfortunately pretty terrible uh we covered first family and uh this is hanky panky which is also pretty terrible the woman in red not good uh movers and shakers not good haunted honeymoon not good and that's her 80s and it's like you watch her on, on Gilda Live or you watch her on SNL and you're like, I, you've got to be kidding me. Well, and anybody who worked with her, anybody who worked around her talks about how she was magic in a room. Like she would light things up and people would be like, oh, my God. And why wasn't Gilda Radner in Clue? Why is Gilda Radner not like why was she not given some goofy, silly, broad, funny stuff to do? Part of the failure of SNL as a launch for talent is that really only the guys ever got the launch. And it's a shame, especially out of this first group, because there were writers like Rosie Schuster and Beats. Uh, there were really great women writers on that first staff of SNL who knew how to write for Gilda, who knew how to write for Lorraine Newman, who knew how to write really smart women's material. If those writers had been allowed to become writer-directors the way all the guys coming out of SNL were, who knows what could have happened? Maybe Gilda would have actually had stuff that was worth her time. But the problem is that no guy who wrote for her really seemed to understand how to write to her strengths. And Hanky Panky is a 
miserable. It, yeah, there's this subgenre of Hitchcock movies done with laugh tracks where it's all about, hey, the wrong guy picked up the suitcase and now he's got the spy secrets and they're all going to try to kill him for two hours and it's going to be a fucking bummer. But see, that's the thing. I think I think Gene Wilder did a good version of this called Silver Streak, where it was kind of a lighthearted Hitchcock thriller and that works pretty well. This seems to be going for that same vibe and it thuds onto the set. This movie has an amazing supporting cast. Robert Prosky, James Tolkien, Kathleen Quinlan, Richard Widmark is the bad guy. Oh, I love these actors. I will watch a mediocre movie just to savor these actors that I like. And then you're halfway through and you're like, you know what? What these actors are given to do doesn't warrant two hours of my time. Let's move on. Hanky Panky stinks. Our next movie is arguably one of the most significant films of the decade. Arguably, schmarguably. Not just one of the biggest hits of all time, but culturally, this became everything for the summer of 1982. Let's get into E.T., the extraterrestrial, and his adventures on Earth. kids and adults, but this is a movie for kids that is not afraid to be sad. Like Bambi, like Old Yeller, like a lot of classic family films that dip their toe into mortality and sadness and dealing with trauma. Absolutely beautiful. I mean, it works great as an adventure story. It works great as a character study about a young boy. It's a, you know, works as a comedy. It works as a lot of different things. This movie is mercenary in how it manipulates the audience and i'm and i'm not saying that is a bad thing it is enormously effective it knows exactly what it's doing at every moment and when it decides it's going to break your heart it breaks your heart i probably saw et in the theaters 20 25 times oh way come on i lived within walking distance of a theater and i think i saw it six times i i can't explain the way i used to see movies but did it by like the 10th time didn't your brain just say I know every line. I know every scene. What I'm saying is one of the reasons that I went so many times was I got to the point where I would take people who hadn't seen it, whether it be aunts or uncles or things like that, so that I could watch them watch it. My sister, my friends and I would like, we'd be driving by our parents would be taking us somewhere and she'd look, my sister look over and be like, oh, still there. And and I don't remember what film it was that replaced E.T. after 11 months, but I swear when we looked up and E.T. was not showing it that, I mean, it was almost like tears were in our eyes because it was there for almost a year. I I mean, I had movies play it for a year when I was managing theaters and doing stuff in the 80s. It was still possible. Like people would keep going. And for me, watching people watch E.T. was educational because you learned how certain beats played universally for people. And it wasn't until I was older that I really understood the connection to the original James Barry Peter Pan play where you have the whole thing where Tinkerbell dies and he would ask the kids in the audience, you have to applaud now. And if you applaud enough, Tinkerbell will come back to life and it would get kids so emotionally involved that they would need Tinkerbell to come back to life and they would applaud until their hands hurt. E.T. has that beat built into it. 
P.T. phone home. Although we weren't applauding and nobody was telling us what we had to do, when people broke and started sobbing in the theater, that was that moment where all of us were having the same exact emotional charge, and then he would come back to life. And to watch that play to a crowd over and over, I learned everything about how drama affects people, about how movies and music and cutting and performance all comes together to make this thing that... You can just put it into any room and people who have a million movies they've seen and people who have seen three movies are still going to have the same emotional sort of bombshell reaction. It was remarkable to watch how effective it was. Yeah, and and it just cemented Spielberg as the guy who can do it all. I mean, the stuff with Dee Wallace, how was she not nominated for this movie, Drew? How is Dee Wallace not nominated? I'm sorry, I'm getting angry. Yeah, I don't know. It's and the movie was nominated left and right. And, uh, I mean, it, for everything and, and should have been. It was it pulled the gravity out of shape for that summer. As soon as audiences saw it, this was it. They just locked in and then just they just started giving their money to it for the rest of the summer. When it comes to stuff like this, we should be asking ourselves these questions and answer it honestly. Is it really that good? It is. Not only is it that good, but I I think taken with Close Encounters, the idea that Spielberg became an adult filmmaker later with Schindler's List and, and movies like that is inaccurate because these movies were dealing with things, big things, and they were dealing with divorce in a way that I think the movies like Shoot the Moon and Kramer versus Kramer, where they went head on at divorce, like we're going to talk about divorce. That's almost the wrong way to do it. No, Close Encounters and E.T. are not the films of a... Uh, of a mindless young man who wants to make wild adventure movies. Close Encounters and E.T. are movies about science fiction elements in, impinging upon very difficult human relationships. And I don't know if you've seen the Spielberg documentary that's on HBO. Not right yet. Now. I'm saving it. I'm saving it. I know it's great. And he talks a little bit in there about how when this began life with Melissa Matheson writing the screenplay, there was no alien. She also wrote uh, Black Stallion, passed away many years ago. Brilliant screenwriter. A genius. Uh, if you've ever read Melissa Matheson's work on the actual page, Melissa Matheson is one of the greats. But it started, it was simply about an absent father. And it was about what happens to a family when the father is gone. And you have to fill in around that. And there was no alien. It wasn't meant to be an outer space movie at first. And that metaphor, then to have something that has to come in and fill that place that's missing, to to fill that heart for that child, that's really where E.T. comes from. And it's really what makes it, I think, so impactful. It, it is a movie that understands that we lose things in our life and we need something else. And when that thing shows up, that is the feeling that we're all struggling towards. D. Wallace. Terrific. She and Terry Garr and Melinda Dillon all kind of got cast playing the Spielberg blonde mom. What you learn watching them is how an actor can change a role because they're all basically playing the same kind of thing. But what Terry Garr does versus what Melinda Dillon does versus what uh, D. Wallace does in this movie, radically different. D. Wallace in this movie is one of the great screen divorcees. She's a woman who is struggling to hold things together and the relationship she has with the children and not just her children, but the children from the neighborhood. That bit where he says they're nothing alike penis breath and she's laughing and shocked at the same moment. One of the best moments I've ever seen a person act with a child. She is Wonderful. Drew Barrymore. You wonder how much of it was real and how much of it was play and how much she consciously even understood. 
it's magic watching her in the movie. She makes E.T. come to life in a way that the effects team needed to pay her for. Her reaction to E.T. makes the film infinitely less ridiculous. Oh, she the minute she gets him, she's like, oh, my God, I can't wait to put clothes on him. She is delighted. The truly underrated, the actor who didn't go on to a better career, Robert McNaughton as Michael. Damn, he's good. That's the kid who is too old for any of this shit. That's the thing, man. E.T. barely works as a, a technical trick. I think E.T. is held together by scotch tape and prayer. It is amazing that we buy the performance as much as we do. And it's because of those kids, man. They sell it. They make us believe in him because they believe in him. And whether it's Barrymore sobbing or whether it's Elliot playing with action figures with him to explain what Star Wars is and things. The kids are so relentlessly real that after a while, you have to buy this rubber thing as alive because they invest it with that. I always felt kind of bad because Henry Thomas and, and Drew Barrymore went on to have great careers and Robert McNaughton kind of just vanished. But I think that, like you mentioned, that, you know, as kind of a surrogate father figure and the, the skeptical older brother and like seeing the, the, the skeptical older brother who often acts like a playful bully. And then he drops his guard and shows his little brother a lot of respect because of what he's like, what Elliot is doing. I had a big sister and I remember thinking, oh, wow, you know, that's interesting. The older brother who normally would just come in and either ignore him or bully him or make a little fun of him. Now he treats Elliot like an equal. E.T. is not only one of the best films of the decade. It is one of the best films I've ever seen about friendship, about loss, sticking up for your brothers and sisters, literally. And, and it's not even my favorite Spielberg film. I will say this. I thought E.T. was universally beloved. And then I met a actual astrophysicist and you know him you've met him scott uh he's uh andy howell he's a good friend of ours brilliant genuinely one of the smartest people i know and the first time i met him somebody walked by and went ask him about et uh, what about et and andy's face got red and andy goes let me tell you why et is the worst piece of shit i've ever seen because here's the thing man if you're that scientist and you have waited your whole life to make contact with an alien species, and not only do we make contact with one, but we make contact with one that evidently has within its abilities the manipulation of matter, the ability to bring life and death to a place where they don't matter in the way that we understand them and can change our civilization with what it can do. That thing comes to Earth, finds a kid, the kid kills it, and then puts it on a spaceship and sends it off the planet before anybody can do anything or study it. That movie sucks. I hate that movie. And it's the reason I became a scientist, because if I ever find him, that kid's not getting near him. I was so delighted to run into somebody who not only hated it, but had this well-founded emotional life with this movie. It's funny that you can watch a movie have this life with it for 20 years and never see something that somebody else has been walking around hip-pocketed for years with. You know what's a fascinating aspect of E.T. that never really gets mentioned? In most space movies, in most invasion movies, we cut to the White House or we cut to a television talking about the invasion. And there's none of that. It only takes place in this small suburb. It's kind of a miracle we never got a sequel to it. And I'm really glad that they never bothered. Oh, I have a feeling that, that Spielberg's got his foot on that door going, no, no, no. The closest they came was the ride that they put in out here at uh, Universal. And when I was a tour guide, the ride, you would go to his planet with him and you would go through and you'd ride around his planet. At the very beginning of the ride, when you went in, you were supposed to say your name to E.T. as you went by. And then if you timed it right and it should work out, then as you come out, E.T. waves and he says your name goodbye. 
Dude, when we were studio guides, our favorite thing was to lean in and say wrong names to E.T. as people's cars were going by. So they would get to the end and we go, goodbye, shithead. It was so much fun and we got in so much trouble for it. All right. Well, we move on from the immortal, legendary, classic E.T. to a film equally beloved, gigantic hit. People still talk about it today. We are, of course, talking about Grease. I think we could all use a little guarantee. All the way action. Let's go. The dancing is back. The fun is back. The nerd is back. They're all together again. Grease is still the word. Grease 2. You'll love it. Rated PG. You know what's weird is watching the gradual rehabilitation of Grease 2 in the public space. If you want to hear somebody who sincerely loves Grease 2, I know Scott's heard this. Listen to the episode of How Did This Get Made that deals with the film, because June Diane Rayfield loves that movie with every fiber of her being, and she makes it clear over the course of the episode why it's important to her. What's great is listening to Anna Ferris, the guest on that episode, who is baffled by June's love. It is so entertaining. Oh, you know, you, every time I've mentioned <laughs> Grease 2 on Twitter, uh, mutual friends of ours like Jen Yamato... Or a Rachel Hain from um, from Nerdist will pop up and go, oh, uh, excuse me, what, 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 Grease 2? Uh, they they legitimately dig it, and it's not ironic. At the time, it was a instantly disliked, yet now it has become an undeniably beloved cult film. It has, there's no denying it. The songs are goofier than the ones in Greece, but to their credit, you know what, they're not, they're not as vulgar as the songs in Well, here's, here's the way I look at it. I think Greece is a better film, and I think Greece has better music. But I think the sexual politics of Greece are fucked. It is a regressive movie in every way. The message of Greece is if you love your high school boyfriend, dress like a whore and put out. The way to get what you want is to not be who you are. It's about changing for somebody else. Whereas this one, by inverting the genders, automatically makes Michelle Pfeiffer's character a little bit more progressive and interesting than the characters in the first film because she is somebody who she's in charge of who she has sex with she's in charge of who she's coupled with she's in charge of her gang really they are the ones making all the choices the dudes are lucky they're even in the conversation in this movie but it's still really poorly written the director patricia birch was the dance choreographer for greece and for many uh, other films and videos fantastic choreographer thinking that maybe not the best person to graduate to the director's seat. I don't know. A production designer who's great at their job does not necessarily need to be a director. And I kind of guess that's the same with a choreographer. Well, this is the same writer as Airplane to the sequel. And I think in general, he should be barred from allowing to do anything involving anybody else's work. Yeah, this gentleman wrote Airplane 2. He wrote a terrible film called Head Office. And he also wrote a terrible film with Madonna called Who's That Girl? And it would be easy to dismiss Ken Finkelman as just a talentless hack. But many years later, he returned to Canada and produced a great TV show called The Newsroom. The guy clearly is a talented writer, but uh, his 80s film output was was fairly dire. Now, Grease 2, it's likable, but it's goofy. Michelle Pfeiffer's great in it. Maxwell Caulfield, not. Not. Not good at all. Not. Adrian Zmed, kind of likable. <laughs> he's like supposed to be like... He's Diet Zuko from the first film. Right. And he's just like, you want to pat him on the head and go, oh, you're adorable. Oh. You know who I ended up really liking in this viewing? And I didn't remember it at all from seeing it before, but it's because obviously now she's very different in terms of who she is and what she does. But I really like Pamela Adlin in this movie as the... One who's just too young to be hanging out with them, but is hanging out with them anyway. 
she's really good. She's kind of charming in it. There's weird choices. Bring back Frenchie from the first film and then marginalizing her and having her on the edge of things. Weird. Bringing her back as a student not only doesn't work time-wise because she's like a decade older than everybody, it doesn't pay off because they don't really give her anything to do. Would your argument be that Grease 2 is not necessarily much worse than Grease? It's just that the songs aren't quite as memorable and the casting is not quite as inspired. That's the problem, is you're dealing with movies that are musicals, and if you don't have a great songbook, your musical's never going to be a great film. They're not great songs here. You don't like, we're going to bowl tonight? We're going to bowl tonight and smooth writer. And I've heard the people who make the case for them. They're terrible songs. That's why one of them is what it is. And, you know, in the first film was scope and it was pretty and they put some money into it. And this was hustled through. They they made this cheaply and they wanted to make it as a, okay, well, I guess we're going to follow it up. It's not really the people from the first one. So I guess come back and see it. Uh, I will say, though, I don't love the songs. I will not take away from Patricia Bursch's skill of choreographing dance numbers. The film has some fantastic choreography. It legitimately does. And if you were to say, Scott, the movie is not that great, but I love the songs and the dancing, I'd walk away saying, God bless you. That's, that's the reason to like a movie. That's a good reason. Now we move on to a film that I liked as a kid, and I fell asleep three times trying to watch it last week. It is the true story about the creation of the beloved internet browser, Firefox. The most devastating killing machine ever built. The man, Mitchell Gant, U.S. fighter pilot. Gant, can you fly that plane? Yeah, I can fly it. The mission, steal Firefox. Clint Eastwood in one of the most incredible undercover operations in history, Firefox. Eastwood directed this between Bronco Billy and Honky Tonk Man. And this was a film in which you seem to want to be a James Bond type character in which he has to go into Russia and steal a super, super high tech Russian jet. It has a few fun moments, frequently very dull. That was an era that we just don't live in anymore. You couldn't make this movie now and have Clint Eastwood take his shirt off and have you go, "Eh, okay, well, that looks like my dad. These days, any action hero doesn't matter what he does he can be a guy who's ridden a desk his whole career there's going to be a scene in the film where he takes his shirt off and he has obviously been in the gym 17 hours a day for six years and this was an era where you could just be an older dude what i find interesting is that this character for the first half of the movie is passive to the point of incapability he has ptsd so strong that when the helicopter arrives to tell him he's got a mission he hides in the corner with a gun and freaks out the first half of this movie, it is the strangest idea anyway that this is the guy they've decided they have to send in to do stuff. And he spends a lot of the movie cowering before finally Clint Eastwood snaps, beats the shit out of a dude. And then for the rest of the movie, he's Clint freaking Eastwood. Boy, what a weird switch. It takes an hour 45 out of a two hour movie to get the jet. And then the 15 minutes they have it is a guy sitting in a cockpit on a soundstage and nothing happening. A lot of Clint Eastwood's 80s output. Like Bronco Billy is a very comfortable movie. He knows what he's doing there. Firefox feels like he's out of his element. He's trying to wedge himself into a hole he doesn't fit. I think the film speaks for itself. Let's move on to another crappy film. This is Al Pacino. And what did you call this one? What did you call this one when we first started talking about it? Awful, awful. Oh my, that's right on. Ladies and gentlemen, author, author. I had a lousy day today. I turned 42. I fired a director. I beat my kids. I forgot to beat my kids. 
20th Century Fox presents Author Author. Happy birthday, Ivan. We are all depressed in this family. We will all stay depressed together. No leaves. Al Pacino, Diane Cannon, Tuesday Well, Bob Dishy, Bob and Ray, Alan King, and the kids. We had breakfast. We're washing dishes. We're bagging garbage. We're surviving, right? Author Author. Sure, I want you to give me your review in, in full-on Pacino voice. Which Pacino voice? Because this movie seems to mark the uh, the transition from, from 70s Pacino when he was up here and he, he had more of the nervous voice to 80s Pacino where he's down here like this and all of a sudden everything got real deep. I got a lot of kids. I have eight kids. Oh, yeah. I got eight kids in the house. It's like Al Pacino's never met a child. Nope. Um, the scenes in this movie where he's supposed to be the loving dad and he comes in and he's like, all right, kids, now we're going to have fun. We're going to make pancakes. He's terrifying. Every kid in this movie looks like they want to be in another room. Like, Who would you get together to make a light comedy about divorce and and and, and, <laughs> and, 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 uh, and stepchildren? I know. Al Pacino and Arthur Hiller. I feel like there was a competition in the late 70s, all, all the way through the 70s and into the 80s between De Niro, Pacino, and Hoffman. I, I got to imagine they went into all the same rooms and they met on all the same films. And they probably got sent the same scripts. And it feels a lot of times like one of them would do something and then the next one would make a choice based on that. So it's like, oh, yeah, you made Kramer versus Kramer. Well, fuck that. I got eight kids. I got eight kids and they're all divorced. Oh, yeah. Author, author is about a playwright who is struggling to uh, get his next play produced. He's having a, a divorcing his wife, who is an awful, awful woman. She dumps oh, not only their children, but her children on him. Right. She's been divorced so many times, she's collecting kids from other marriages now. And she's just causing trauma to all of them. And it really feels like somebody went to Pacino and said, Kramer versus Kramer combined with eight is enough. And he went, I want you to find me a whole lot of kids. I want everybody to rent author, author, just to hear the opening song. And this is great because he's a playwright in this. So there's a whole bunch of material in this movie that's about him trying to get this play off the ground. And he's working with a, an actress that he really loves. And Diane Cannon comes in. There's a scene in this movie where he goes to get her to do the play. And she has dinner with him and with his and with his agent. That scene is a movie that I would have watched because Diane Cannon comes in and all of a sudden she's so interesting and she's doing things and there's choices she's making. She's eating the Alka-Seltzer and she's drinking the champagne. It's a shame that Diane Cannon comes in and does this interesting work because then they sideline her. The way they write her character out of this movie is atrocious. By the time Al Pacino ends up on the roof of his building with the eight kids, and they barricaded themselves in and they're not coming down until the police allow Al Pacino to raise the children because that's how the court system works. Um, you realize that you are in the hands of dangerous lunatics who have no business making a movie about children. Oh, my kids. I love my kids. All eight of them. All right. Let's move on. June 25th, Drew. Did you go see Megaforce? From the director who brought you Smokey and the Bandit, Cooper and Cannonball Run, comes the ultimate spectacle. Megaforce, an elite compact fighting unit armed with the most sophisticated weapons science can devise. Theirs is the greatest challenge any force has ever faced. Megaforce, rated PG, now playing at a selected theater near you. Is ridiculous necessarily a bad word? No, no. But inept is. This is the lunk-headed, dude-bro version of Buckaroo Banzai. 
extra fascinating when you look at it in the context of Hal Needham working so far outside of his comfort zone that he would need a compass to find it. Hal Needham, as a director, is known for car crashes, Smokey and the Bandit, Hooper, uh, Cannibal Run, and then he got to do this. His first movie with like some kind of actual direction needed in that it, it takes place in the future and it, uh, everybody needs like costumes and dialogue, unlike in Smokey and the Bandit or Cannibal Run, where it's like you could wear your jeans and just spitball with, with Don DeLuise and we'll just shoot it all. And this movie really lays bare how inept as a director Hal Needham really is. This thing looks like it was shot in a weekend. Yeah, on his ranch. It, it's just he went out back. He goes, I don't know. We're going to set it in two different countries that don't exist. We can shoot it in my yard. For armor, everybody just went like went to a kitchen supply store and be like, oh, I got a colander. That's a cod piece. All right. I got a washboard. That's for my neck. It's just so chintzy. And it, if you don't have the money to make something with effects, don't. Barry Bostwick, Michael Beck, Henry Silva, and uh, the late Persis Kambada. And it's just, you know, a typical uh, post-apocalyptic type of megaforce. Megaforce. Two countries that don't exist are dealing with some border skirmishes. And one of them goes to Megaforce, megaforce. which is a top secret police agency and asks them to help intercede. And they end up in a battle with the guy who mentored the guy that runs Megaforce. Megaforce. I think that's it. And they have a lot of high-tech gear that is not very high-tech. It's like G.I. Joe if you're playing G.I. Joe with a really stupid kid. No, if you were playing G.I. Joe, but instead of action figures, they're just small potatoes. And it's the kind of bad where, you know, you've talked about how camp has failed seriousness. That's the Sontag description of it. This is attempted camp. This is somebody trying to make camp. And what you make when you try to make camp is awful comedy. And this is a movie that thinks it's hilarious all the way through. Barry Bostwick is playing a totally different film. He's playing a, a very self-aware, winking comedy version of this movie. I, I don't know if this was meant to be like almost a satire because Hal Needham has done comedy before. He did a movie called The Villain, which is a, a bad parody of Westerns, but it is still a parody. And I'm watching Megaforce and I'm thinking, is this meant to be a satire of, of, of Road Warrior type movies? No, it's not. It's just a very inept version. I love how be before it came out, there was a ton of talk by Hal Needham and by the producers about how the stuff that was in this movie is like super high tech. And these are uh, gadgets and devices that are going to be actually used in war in the next decade and everything else. And you see it and it's dune buggies with shit glued to them. Megaforce. And that was Hal Needham's idea of what the high tech weapons of the future were going to look like. It's hilarious. Well, you know, I would always say Hal Needham, you know, to his credit, he, he was a William Castle type. He, he knew that filmmaking and, and distribution, part of it was the hype. Megaforce was hyped. I mean, it was all over comic books. They, they had action figures. I mean, Megaforce was, uh, they thought it was going to be a big hit. Yeah. And it was, like I said, Golden Harvest, which is one of the major Hong Kong production companies. This was part of their push to get into American uh, film markets. They counted on Needham because they were like a partner on Cannonball Run 1 and 2, and that's why you had Jackie Chan in those films. This movie was meant to be more internationally flavored, I think, and instead ended up being very American and very goofy American. You know everything you need to know from the fact that the main character's name is Ace Hunter. That's like on Mystery Science Theater when they would do those runs of names and it would be like Thick McRunfast. Slab Bulkhead. Blast Hard Cheese. Dump Junkman. Dirk Hardpack. Ace Hunter is the name that you put in a screenplay when you're nine and you're writing your very first movie. Not the name you give a character in a movie that's actually produced and released the theaters. 
before we move on, I would be remiss if I didn't offer a few moments of defense of Megaforce from our mutual friend, C. Robert Cargill. The biggest Megaforce fan on the planet. And I mean that by volume and by how much he loves He's it. He's the uh, co-host of Junk Food Cinema. He is the co-writer of uh, Doctor Strange and Sinister. He's also a novelist of some renown. And despite all of those things, he loves Megaforce. So over to you, Cargill. Hey guys, okay, so is Megaforce a good movie? No, Megaforce is a great movie. Megaforce is what happened when Hal Needham decided he wanted to make a kid's movie, he essentially wanted to make a live action G.I. Joe movie. And so he put together an idea, went to Burt Reynolds and said, let's go make this out in the desert. And Burt Reynolds said, no. And so instead, he hired the guy he saw starring in the Pirates of Penzance on stage, which was Barry Bostwick. And uh, we also got Michael Beck, who you guys just talked about last month with Battle Truck. And the thing is about this movie, the scenes that don't work really don't work. They just do not work. But they so not work that they're hilarious. It has the greatest awful love scene of all time in which we have two people parachuting together having a love scene. The skydiving love scene is amazing. And then when you get to the stunts, the stunts are legitimately great. It's still a Hal Needham movie. And there is this awesome action sequence in here in which it is a four minute raid on a terrorist camp in which the time is ticking down at the bottom of the screen and it is a race to the finish of four minutes of just really awesome stunts the design is great here the music is fun the movie is just a good fun time and it pushes all of my buttons in just the right way and it's a kid movie that goes off the rails in all the best ways Yep, nobody's perfect. <laughs> All right, now we move on to a film that I, I, I bet Cargill likes too. And me, and you. And this was a very influential film on me and a lot of American nerds. It is Monty Python, live at the Hollywood Bowl. Look, the main value of this movie is to demonstrate just how rock star big Monty Python was at one point. They are, and I don't think there's anybody that can argue with this, they are the Beatles of comedy and no one else has ever come close. This is an early shot on video. It's not a particularly good looking movie. Um, directed by Terry Hughes uh, and Ian McNaughton, who was the director of the original series. And it is a hodgepodge of sketches, some of which predate Flying Circus, most of which are from Flying Circus. And it's got some of my very favorite bits, like Sit on My Face or the Silly Olympics or Crunchy. I had never heard Crunchy Frog before I bought this. Uh, I had this album, not just the movie, but I had the soundtrack. The Crunchy Frog bit is just so inspired. God damn, is that funny? And it's almost like uh, when you when you go hear a band that you love and you notice the little bit, like if you go to see uh, Floyd and you notice these little changes they make in the key songs that you love, and, and that makes the uh, concert interesting. And, and that's what's cool about Live at the Hollywood Bowl is that, you know, most Monty Python fans can recite their favorite bits from memory. And the fun thing about Hollywood Bowl is, of course, because it's live, things are just a bit different. A dialogue might be a little bit different or a punchline might be delivered differently. And that novelty of it not being the exact same version is always fun. And I love the way they played with the uh, the actual audience themselves, like uh, the albatross is Cleese is kind of wandering through trying to sell albatrosses on a stick. They play a lot with running in and out of the audience and um, it's fun to watch these guys come together. And this is, you know, one of the last times they were all really together and really Monty Python. That's kind of special if you're a fan of their collective work. Uh, I love seeing Gilliam and seeing the way that, that Gilliam plays with the guys. He very rarely was a performer. 
I love the fact that you get to see the way that they are entertained by one another when you watch this, because clearly there's a lot of times where as much as they're playing the audience, they're playing to see if they can make somebody else on stage break because they know somebody else loves a line or because they know that somebody else loves to play a scene. And so there's a lot of that. And I think you learn a lot about them watching this. Almost every version that you see here, I prefer the original simply because they are cleaner. Yeah, I think you're right. I think I always, you know, it's just like I normally like studio versions more than, than live versions. I think I agree, but I am exceedingly grateful to this film because it really kept me in my Monty Python addiction when, you know, I didn't have many other things to hold on to. You know, you'd seen the, the couple of movies so many times, uh, you know, so something like this was just this and the album was was a, a big part of my childhood. I am a huge fan of of uh, this concert film. But let's move on, Drew. We have two huge films to close out with. If we just did these next two as an episode. That would be enough. And these were the two that I saw opening weekend. Let's keep in mind that the following two science fiction films came out one week after E.T. hit the box office like 500 nuclear bombs at once so these films were virtually buried they might have done better in other months they might have done better other times of the year but let's not even focus on how they did financially let's start out talking about the beautiful legendary blade runner los angeles 2019 there was an escape from the off-world colonies. They slaughtered... 20. The assignment? Track down six manufactured humans. He's the best man for the job. But he may die trying to prove it. Harrison Ford is the Blade Runner. This is not an easy film to love. And it, it's never been an easy film to love in any form. I understand that. I loved it. Immediately and chemically, it transported me in a way that even Star Wars didn't. I felt like I stepped into Blade Runner. And at the end of that two hours, when I stepped back out of the theater and my dad was standing outside and I had to look around and the world was still the world, I don't think I've ever been that disappointed that I wasn't still in a movie. Blade Runner is as tactile as any science fiction film ever made. And there's a reason that even today, people continue to just vigorously rip it off. I did not have much of an attention span when I was a younger kid. So to me, Blade Runner would have come across as like a sci-fi drama, and I would have probably moved over to something like um, Megaforce, unfortunately. I think that I discovered Blade Runner. This one's lost to the sands of time. I'm almost positive it was like just a random VHS rental. I, like you, I... Popped it in, watched like within five minutes. I'm like, oh, this is pretty interesting. I didn't know a damn thing about film noir at this point. I just knew it was a like dark, wet, moody sci-fi movie. And like, that's how I would have described it. It's raining and miserable and gloomy. And like you, after the first five minutes, I was so fascinated by what I was looking at because it like, it was one of the first science fiction films I ever saw that was like, oh, this looks a lot like the real world, but slightly askew. I still have the 1982 Souvenir Collectors magazine that I bought in the uh, 7-Eleven across the street from the theater that weekend. I read everything you could read. It introduced me to Philip K. Dick, because then I, I read the book, Do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep, and I not only realized, okay, they didn't bother adapting this, they just took this as a jumping-off point and did their own thing, but 
it introduced me to science fiction that worked beyond the sort of action movie level of science fiction. Um, Philip K. Dick was the first time I realized that science fiction could challenge the entire notion of what you thought of as reality. And the idea that empathy was the thing that distinguished these creatures from human beings was an idea that I still think is very esoteric. It's hard for a lot of audiences to get their head around. But it's what made the movie so beautiful to me is the notion that all these things want is that little bit more life. And the fact that they want it as much as they do, and yet they don't feel it the same way we do. That is this this great paradox at the heart of this film. The ending of this movie, even before we got to the revised version where Ridley Scott started to try and assert his version of things, the original version of the film really didn't play with that. The original version was he was a man and he went after these robots. And what made the ending so beautiful originally to me and the thing that haunted me and that I kept trying to explain to people that just never clicked with it the way I did was to have this bad guy, this movie bad guy, reach a moment where he could have let Deckard die, where he could have let Deckard go. He could have gotten away. But in that moment, he realized that Deckard feels those things that he doesn't. That Deckard has that empathy. That Deckard lives his life more fully. And that he couldn't let that go out, even though this guy was going to kill him. It's not that these replicants are evil. It's that they, they're lacking what we failed to give them. So it's like our own fault, you know, it's that's what's so fascinating about the quote unquote anti-villain or the villains in this movie is that they're after what makes us human. They're not out to kill us. And I'd never seen a, I'd never seen a choice like him saving him and then explaining to him that I just I'm so sad that all these moments I've collected die when I die. I'm so sad that all these things that I've seen go away when I die. I'd never thought of that before. I'd never thought of the way memory defines you. And it's what you're realizing is that a man-made human now has the existential angst that we do. I love that the, the world of the movie is a world where anybody who has any money, anybody who has any resources, anybody who has any ability to do so has already left Earth. Earth is dead. Earth is what's left over. Earth is the detritus. The fact that the robots come back to Earth isn't because Earth is great. It's because it's where you hide trash. And that... I thought was haunting and sad when I was a kid that that there are people that are never going to get off the planet, that even if we do as a species, there's going to be people that because of whatever class they're in are left here. That blew my mind and hurt me like Blade Runner was a film that it took me a long time to really fully get my heart, my head, and my heart around because it is a prickly ugly sad future and it doesn't try to make it better and it doesn't try to make you feel good about it or feel good about who we're going to be it's it's a really broken-hearted movie and i still kind of can't believe a studio made it i also can't believe a studio made a sequel and that the sequel managed to not fuck everything up what what I think is so great about this movie, and it's I think that movies like this were greenlit because people were uh, still chasing a little bit of that 2001 cred, which is, hey, if we could combine a popular adventure movie with some of the cerebral nature of 2001, that's the best of both worlds. And and they started to realize throughout the 80s, uh, it's a lot easier to just get rid of the cerebral stuff. We don't care about that anymore. And And that's what makes Blade Runner so amazing is that it does work as a film noir or as a chase thriller or as a, a mild as action. I wouldn't call it an action film, but as a chase movie. But if you want to just dig a little bit deeper, you know, beneath the surface, it there's so much metaphysical and existential meat in there to dig through. And we've only 
not even scratched the surface about the subtext that you could get into in this movie. It's also the first place where I ever really ran into the idea that style and substance are not separate things, that style can be the substance of a movie, and that when you try to make it that, well, it's style over substance. Well, not necessarily. Yeah, but you know, a lot of filmmakers, I mean, a lot of filmmakers do rely on st- like 90% style and 10% substance. Well, and that raises the question of what makes a filmmaker special. And my love-hate relationship with Ridley Scott is still ongoing. I still, every film, we'll see. I don't know which Ridley Scott's showing up this time. What I love when Ridley is firing on all cylinders is that Ridley Scott is a guy who clearly the style is going to be there. He cannot help himself. He is a aesthetically driven artist and he will ladle the film in style. Whether or not there's any meat there, that's that's really what ends up tipping the scale for him. And you cannot overestimate the impact that David Webb Peoples and Hampton Fancher had as writers because this screenplay gave Ridley room to then ladle on all the style he wanted and he couldn't smother it. It still got smarts. I think that in a lot of cases, Ridley Scott is a filmmaker who sometimes lets style overtake the the substance or the the text or the meat of the story. And I don't think in this case, I think you'd agree in this case, he does not. The, the screenplay is just too good for him to, uh, and and plus he wasn't the uh, the Ridley Scott that he is now, which is back then he was probably more than happy to, you know, please his bosses. Nowadays he is the boss and only has to please himself. I just love that that he and and Harrison Ford still don't agree on what the movie's about, and the fact that you could do that, the fact that you could make a movie and it could be out there for thirty five years and have the life this one had, and you can still have the star and the director disagree rapidly about what the movie says. That's intriguing. Uh, before we move on to our final film, Drew, I quite enjoyed 2049. I don't know if if my one late night viewing, I was half asleep. I hate to say it, but uh, not the film's fault, but I was having a bad day and I just had to see it. I, I like it very much. I would have to see it again to discuss it in, in, in detail. I think it's the real deal. And it surprised me because I, I didn't want it. I didn't want anything to do with it. I actually really hated the idea they were making it. And I, you know, I'd read like the book sequels and stuff and I, I hated all of them. I thought it was a terrible idea. And then God bless them. They actually made a movie that not only lives up to the original, but I think enhances it and adds to it and does not feel like it has to tear anything down or solve any of the first or rewrite. That's what I hate is when, when a late arriving sequel kind of paves over, you can still argue about the first film after seeing the sequel. If you're going to do a late arriving sequel, make sure that original still gets some respect. You're not reinventing the wheel. You're making a sequel. Okay. Now we move on to one of the best horror films of the entire decade. It is infamous in that, It came and went from theaters real quickly, thanks partially to E.T., and thanks partially to the contemporary film critics at the time who trashed John Carpenter's The Thing. Its origin, alien. Location, Antarctica. Age, unknown. Intent, survival. Destination, man. John Carpenter's The Thing, the ultimate in alien terror, rated R. Starts Friday at a theater near you. Check newspapers for local listings. They should round up every review written of that film when it came out, and they should hold everybody accountable for what they wrote, because it is shocking to me how disregarded and mistreated this film was. In their defense, this movie had some kind of 
aggressive, gruesome special effects that mainstream audiences had not really seen before. So as a film critic, I, I, in 1982, I think I would have liked this movie, but even I would have said, wow, they're really pushing it with the graphic violence. That's super gory. And I don't know if I would have used it as a, as a, as a criticism, but I just am willing to like maybe give some of those critics a little benefit of the doubt. I'm not. And I'm, I'm angry about it still because I think the filmmaking is otherworldly good. Siskel and Ebert, they often let a, the level of a film's violence cloud their judgment to the rest of the film. And that's what you shouldn't do. Uh, if you have a problem with the film's graphic violence, that's fine. But that's not all the thing is. It's remarkably made. I, a couple of weeks ago, showed this to the boys. And oh my God, did it play like nobody's business. And what I love is that even now, you you know, you talk about at the time the, the violence was considered shocking or graphic. Nobody's ever seen anything like this. This movie exists in its own universe where what happens in this movie is so insane and so bizarre and the visuals are so wild. We've still never seen anything else like this. Nobody's ever given an artist like Rob Bottin a year to do the special effects after the fact. One of the things that bothers me about the criticisms of this movie is that not that they point out that the it has excessive gore and blood and viscera. That's fine that you point that out. To point that out as a negative or as a criticism, that's what bothers me. Carpenter went out to make a horror film about a biological creature. And in order to make that biological creature seem real and scary and effective, he wanted to show the entire gruesome process. I think it's beautiful. I think Botine's work in this movie is beautiful. I think it is surreal. I think it is sculpturally. The fact that you can get a camera as close to it as you can, and you can just spend time staring at it, and it never gets easier to look at. Every time I see that chest burst open on the t on the operating table, every time I see that head sprout the little legs, every time the dog bre head breaks open like a banana. I just love the one they bring back from the Scandinavian camp, and they're investigating at the beginning with the twisted face. That's the greatest sculpture. And the fact that they can get as close as they can, and Wilford Brimley can be sticking his hands in it and watch Wilford Brimley when they cut it open at one point and you see him gag and like really start to back off. They all sell that it's a real biological thing. It upsets them and it offends them because it should not exist. And he's a doctor. That's the funny part. The doctor of all people should not cringe at, at, at the sight of biology. It's because he knows it doesn't work. None of this makes sense. And watching his brain try to grapple with what he's looking at, he's having the reaction any rational medical official would have is, no, this doesn't exist. True. Let me ask you this. If you trim down the gore, okay, let's say you did, God forbid. But if you trim down the gore to make it relatively normal, and then it was just a horror film about alienation, isolation, paranoia, even with half the gore. It's still a brilliant horror film. The scariest thing in the movie has nothing to do with the gore. The scariest moment in the movie, to me, comes late in the film. They've had Blair out in the shack for a while, and they go to talk to him. And Brimley comes to the little the little door in the door, and he's talking. I want to come back inside. I'm okay now. I want to come back inside. And the whole time he's being very calm and rational and talking to him, there's a fucking noose hanging about three feet over his shoulder. It got dark out in that shack before they came back out there. And the implication, clearly, what's talking to them there, as we know from later in the film, it's already the thing. But the implication of what had happened, that Blair got to the point where he was going to hang himself and the thing somehow came to him at that moment, 
that story that's told with just that setup is darker and scarier and sadder than most horror films in their entire running time. And the movie does that over and over. The bit where he says, I got to go to my cabin. And he says, why? And he says, because when I left, I turned the lights off. That's all. Oh, how great is the shot where the dog is walking down the hall and it's one of the first moments it's by itself and it walks into a room and there's just a shadow on the wall that turns and looks at it. Mm-hmm. How great is that? Yeah. And that dog, by the way, may be one of the great dog actors of all time. It, it's upsetting how good it Pauses, is. Pauses, looks around and then gingerly sits down. And you could almost like if you know the film in and out, you could be like. Okay, the alien is now walking into the room and testing, you know, oh, it's so creepy. You watch those other dogs react to it as it goes into the pen that first time, and you see them like, uh, dude, that's not a dog. Hey, not a dog. Another part that bugs me about about the negativity, but not to go back to that, but I have to. The gore serves a purpose. It's meant to be intimidating. It's meant to be horrifying so that the next time that, that, that a, a scary or gory moment might show up, your blood pressure goes up. You get nervous. I don't want to see another, oh my God, that head just squeezed itself off and crawled across. The, oh my God. The anticipation of being scared by that is part of a horror film's uh, arsenal. So to say that the gore is too much or to say that it's excessive or to say that it's not artistry is offensive to Carpenter, Bettine, and everybody else. Well, even beyond that, I think it really underlines how alien this thing is. It just doesn't do anything we're used to. Nothing can do what it does. Nothing can drip off a table, sprout legs, and walk away. When he turns around, he says, you got to be fucking kidding me. That's a great laugh line, but it's also literally the only thing anybody would be able to say looking at that. It's so crazy. You've got to have a character react like that because if they don't, the audience will. And if the audience will, your movie's about to fall apart. So you have to have one of the, or two or ten of the characters say, what the F is that? One great actor after another. Donald Moffat in this film is excellent. Wilford Brimley, as I said, is great. Charles Hallahan, Keith David, T.K. Carter, David Clennon, Richard Maser, Dick Maser is Clark. He's fantastic. Yeah, Richard Dysart is great. I think he and uh, Brimley really ground this thing because as sort of older guys being the voice of reason, when even they are as freaked out as they are by this thing, you know that it's really rattled. Right, and it's like when when guys who are like manly men, and I don't mean just guys who are trying to be macho, I mean like a guy like Donald Moffat or Richard Dysart or Wilfred Brimley, they're grandfather types. Yeah, they're manly men, and when these guys are terrified, when quote-unquote manly men are terrified, that means all bets are off. I adore Kurt Russell's sombrero in this film, and I think Kurt Russell in this movie, this is, there's a reason he's Kurt Russell. There's a reason he's an icon. There's a reason we love him. And it's because in a performance like this, he knew that the wrong way to go with this is to play the macho action lead. And time and time again in Carpenter's movies, he undermines what we consider the traditional machismo approach to this. He's a guy who's going to survive, but who's not going to look cool while he does it. And I love how, how hard they work to deflate cool in this movie. Oh, the best thing about uh, McCready is the first scene we meet him in, he is destroying a computer because it beat him at chess. That's not a heroic action. That is the action of a misfit, of a troublemaker. Listen to him when he's recording that really pessimistic journal entry late, late in the film. It's not John Wayne. It's not the action heroes we've been primed to expect. It's a guy who knows they're going to die. And he's made his peace with it, an uneasy peace. I, I love that they don't 
explain. The bit that he cuts out of that is none of us trust each other anymore. And then he rewinds it and deletes over, plays over that. And it's never really explained why he thinks that part should be deleted. And I just love that. It's just something that he and his personality and in McCready's mind thought, I don't want them to know that. I don't want them to know that we don't trust each other. Honestly, Blade Runner and the Thing that weekend, because I saw one on Saturday and one on Sunday. And by a week later, the story had been written that they were both disasters and they both were on their way out and and they they just weren't going to be, you know, they weren't the hits and they were gone. That's kind of the origin story for why you're listening to me talk about movies right now, because I love those movies then. I love them as soon as I saw them and I carried those things with me for years. And it wasn't until later that I started to meet people who felt the same way. And little by little, I saw the image of these films improve and I saw the reputation grow and I and I realized that other people had been impacted by them and that they had that they had landed that they had actually reached people but you wouldn't have known it at the time because critics even let me down on those it was the moment where I realized I don't trust anybody as the final arbiter except me I need to see a movie before I know whether or not I'm going to like it and that moment and that weekend and to have these films be as great as they were as undeniably important as they were and to have them be greeted the way they were it informed everything after for me and i became a critic largely because i felt the need to make sure i was on record for films that other people weren't going to support that i loved what's funny is that you know nowadays uh, in the in the uh, realm of superhero movies, and there's like the DC versus Marvel angle. There's this whole, oh, why should I even listen to film critics? And my my attitude is, don't don't listen to film critics. You can read my stuff, or you can read Drew's stuff. You can don't have to listen to us to like enjoy what we write. But don't listen if you if you're dying to see uh, Jigsaw, and most of the reviews are negative. You go see that movie. Why? Because the people who wrote those reviews aren't you that's why it's never meant to be the the last word on something and i think that that's that's important to realize all right guys listen i this is an unbelievable lineup i i can't believe we finally got here and what it's done by doing all of this as one fell swoop by seeing all of june set in the context it's it's really got me excited to do months that i didn't love this much because i'm realizing what you love is still only part of the story. These months are much weirder and much bigger and much deeper. And the the series continues to surprise me as I discover things. And I'm really happy, for example, that Chan is missing was highlighted in the same episode where we get to finally talk about the thing or Star Trek two. Thank you to every single listener we have out there. Thank you to all our patrons. Thank you to everybody who sends a review or tweet. Uh, we will see you next month for July of 82. Dude, Don Bluth leads an uprising against Walt Disney and gives birth to a generation of animators in the process. Also, Walt Disney pushes visual effects forward and shreds the envelope in the process. Burt Reynolds and Dolly Parton hoard up, and Robin Williams investigates the world according to John Irving. You're going to get all of that and more in two weeks on July of 82. See you then. Goodbye, shithead. 